Hello and welcome to the Music Survival Guide, the independent musician's guide on how to survive in the music industry. My name's Phil, a mixing and mastering engineer with Vortis Sound Studios. Welcome, welcome, welcome. As this episode goes out, it is now December. We are towards the end of what has been a pretty terrible year. So let's hope 2021 is a, a bit better, shall we? This week, I've got an interview with Raz, Raz White, who organises the Call of the Wild Festival. It's a really interesting chat about how festivals are organised, how they're managed, how he finds bands to play at the festival, and some ideas and advice on how to get organised as a band to play a festival. It's a really wide-ranging and interesting interview, a bit of a behind the scenes on how these kinds of things work. It's worth saying that as we recorded this in lockdown in our respective homes, you can hear Raz's family going out and about in the house. I'm sorry about that, but I felt like it was such a good interview that I couldn't cut out those bits. So I hope you enjoy. Without any further hesitation or ado, here is Raz. So today I am joined by Raz White, organiser of Call of the Wild Festival. Raz, how are you? I'm not bad so Phil, thank you. Good. It's a weird time in the music industry, certainly for the live music industry. I think that's probably a massive understatement. We're moving kind of backwards a bit to maybe happen. It started in 2019 was the first year that we actually had the festival, but the discussion discussion would have been early 2018 when myself and Dave O'Hara we met up at a gig he was managing Tomorrow's Lost we got talking and um, literally just out of the blue I was on about how much I wanted to do a festival he he knew me from Rockmantic and stuff and I'd said you know we're talking about loads of people have been saying to me for years you need to do an outdoor festival blah 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 I was like I'm not ready I'm not ready it takes a good team of people got to be in the right place. I just got to be right in my head with everything. And uh, he sort of said, yeah, it's something I've always wanted to do. Like, And we sort of went, right, let's let's have a go at it. It started off with a, a small idea with, you know, sort of average club-sized bands. Uh, we have an area of maybe three or 400 people, and it just kind of exploded, you know. I, I said to Dave, you know, if I'm going to do this, like my dream band – is um, I've always wanted to put on it something like this. It's the Wild Hearts. But I said, if we're going to have them, then we're going to have to have a, a bigger sort of set up than what we first thought about. And, you know, he's just like, well, let's, uh, you know, go bigger, go home, mate. Let's do it. Let's do the real thing. And I said, yeah, you know, this is why I've waited so long because when I get involved in this, I want it to look like a proper professional festival, not something that has been thrown together half-heartedly, you know, and... We need a really good team of people, and that—that's literally that's where that's where it was born, really. You know. <laughs> but I guess so. You're um, you're a promoter as well. You're a gig promoter, so you've got that kind of background, haven't you? Yes, um, I've got Razway Entertainment. I've run as a company for ten years now. But I've been promoting bands for about 25 years from sort of little pubs. Uh, I lived in Lincoln for eight years when I was younger and put on bands in a, a pub there, really. Bands like Paradise Alley that have kind of come back to life a little bit. James Gang, which is Stevie James out of Tiger Tales. So I got a real taste for it there. And it's just 
music's been my life ever since I can remember. It's it's crazy, but first and foremost, I wanted to be a rock star. But um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's just somewhere along the lines. I thought if I can't be up there, I want to put other bands up there that I really like. I've always been the sort of person that's not. Again, I've only sort of realised recently that I'm quite unusual in the sense of I'm not one of these people that can just listen to music and like it. I listen to it, I like it, I need to tell everybody how great it is. I have to show them how good the band is. And I try and influence them to follow the band and like the band. And then it's, that's really what a promoter should do, you know, all the time, not not just for a show. It should be always about promoting the music and the bands. It's a natural extension of sort of the way you are has just resulted in what you do. It, it seems to be, yeah. Again, a lot of people <laughs> said, you're crazy to do an outdoor festival because we were going through a bit of a rough patch. There was a few smaller ones that sort of started up. A few fell by the wayside, went, went bust. There was quite a big one, Altfest, I think it was. It was all a bit of a, a sham. But a lot of people lost a lot of money that bought tickets for that. And there was just a few festivals that were doing that. People were losing money. So it's very difficult to to say, right, we're going to do this, and if only 10 people buy a ticket, this will happen. This Because people think, well, if you don't sell enough tickets, you're going to cancel it, we're going to lose our money. And it didn't matter how much we tried to tell people, there was still that concern about a first festival. But we set out with the budget to pay for everything, and we did, you know. And like many first-time festivals, we, we made a, a small loss. Or some would say small in a festival world, but probably large to the general public. It was an investment in the future of the festival. And it worked because when we set the festival up, the way we wanted it to look with all the bands, the atmosphere, the team, the production team, our people that volunteered to help with artist liaisons and the press room and everything like that. Every single band, manager, agent came up to us and said, you've blown us away like that was spectacular like there's huge festivals that don't treat us as well as this and you know that was one of our ultimate goals was to treat the bands as if they were playing like a, a massive festival and and the fans to feel like they're at a massive festival you know and we knew that it wouldn't be massive immediately but it was to feel like that's what it could be and uh, we were, we succeeded really well so i guess the first one in 2019 was as much as anything, it was a real kind of learning experience for you to work out what does and doesn't work when practically actually making a festival rather than thinking about the idea of it. Yes, it was It was a, a huge learning curve, even though all of us, by this point, Lee Byrne had come in as a, as a third director of the company and he's a production manager. He's got a lot of experience working at huge festivals like Glastonbury and Bestival and all these stuff as a stage uh, manager and stuff. And me through the promotion and stuff. Dave's worked with loads of bands, done done some festivals. But on the day, it was, yeah, probably for the first three or four hours, like we were like running around crazy, just thinking, oh my God, we've lost the plot. Like this is the, the whole thing of like you tell people to come at 11 o'clock and they were all piling in at eight o'clock in the morning. And we were still having our briefings. So we learned a massive lesson there. It was like, right, okay, nobody actually listens to what you tell them. So like we, we will have our briefings the night before and we'll all be waiting at eight o'clock for people to arrive next time. In saying that, by Friday afternoon, early evening, we were all very calm. Our whole all our teams had sort of pulled together and everybody was doing everything. 
And by Saturday, we were kind of just looking after it all and, and, and mingling with people and having a great time. So I think that, that felt really good. Like we felt like, yep, yeah, we've actually achieved something here. I guess all your planning by the Friday night actually paid off and it worked <laughs> rather than everything going wrong. It did. It did in the sense of we were just caught a little bit out of off guard with uh, people being super excited about our festival and, and, and wanting to get there first thing in the morning instead of waiting until gates opened. But, you know, luckily enough, don't know every single person, but through Rockmantic and uh, going to other events like Hard Rock Hell and such likes, I know a lot of the people that were coming, they were just like, oh, don't worry, it's cool, just show us where the campsite is and we'll just go and get set up and everything. And everybody was really good, like, you know, it's a really an amazing atmosphere. I promised everybody sunshine and it was like about 30 degrees at 10 o'clock in the morning. Like you couldn't actually pray for a better setup than, than what happened. So it was a great, great first year, really. Yeah, it was. In your head, you have this image of how you want it to be. And it was almost identical to how we had wanted it to be. <laughs> Even down the, the, the Sunday afternoon when we had a little bit of rain, because everybody was sunburned and really hot. And then it was a bit of rain and it was just great. It was like, wow, fresh air again. You know, we'll take a little bit of rain for like a couple of hours. But yeah, it was uh, it was an amazing experience, which we all came away from. And, you know, we when we set it up, we, were, we weren't testing it out to see if we'd do another year. We were always going to do another year. We were going to do a five-year plan minimum. But what we had was people coming up to us on Saturday uh, morning asking where they could buy next year's tickets. <laughs> and again, we weren't prepared for that. So we very quickly set up a quick box office, sort of through a PayPal link, and I think we sold about 70 or 80 tickets the Saturday morning for everybody to come back next year. And it was, yeah, it was, that was a great feeling. In a moment, I'd like to talk about the sort of band experience of things like going to festivals, because this is a podcast mainly aimed at people in bands. But I think for the benefit of those listening, there's a lot of things that go into a festival beyond the booking of bands that a lot of people don't think about. So I'd love to hear about when the organising of a festival starts and things like that. Yes, there is a lot. And it's maybe where a lot of people that have tried to organise their own festivals have gone a little bit wrong. Because before, I mean, I sort of booked a few bands, but before we really got into the bigger picture of it all, there was 25-page event management plan had to be created massively by Lee Byrne, literally did nearly every bit of that, and it was so time-consuming. A, a good week went into it, and then you, you give that over, and uh, it gets looked through, and then they come back saying, no, we're not happy with that. You need to be you know, more thorough on your health and safety. You need to tell us what happens if this happens, your fire safety you know, general security, everything down to what happens if there's a terrorist attack. What what are you going to do? You start thinking, God, this is not this is not what we want to do. We just want to put some bands on and have a laugh and <laughs> have a party. But that side of it is so important. And I think that's why when it came to the weekend, it did go smoothly because there was so much groundwork put into it. You know, you've got to get the license, you've got to get outside security to come in, which is, is not cheap. You've got PRS to sort out. There's just a million things to do before you actually get to the the fun part of a festival, you know. When does the organising of a, a festival begin? So say it is 2019 and the weekend of the last festival has just finished 
and obviously you were selling some tickets early when you were there but when does the planning for the next year begin is it immediate or is it even before the previous one it's generally before i would say anything up to about 18 months before the festival day is when you start to look at your headline bands because a lot of people don't quite understand that in the music industry and bands and stuff they have recording schedules promotion schedules touring schedules and it's a kind of a two-year plan so at any given time right now at the end of 2020 we're talking to bands that are already planning the 2022 spring summer tours and actually speaking to a couple for, for other things that are into like the end of 2022 for instance so it's not unusual for us to be booking for 2022 round about now probably one thing that's held me off a little bit it's it's securing like the headline band 2022 is through all the covid stuff and that and we're still just hanging fire and a lot of things just wanting to get 2021 done first you know but i would imagine i will begin about february speaking to agents and getting contracts and stuff sorted out so Quite often when you get a lot of smaller bands, like for instance, we just recently shared another poster that had been updated and then you get an influx of emails from bands saying, oh, can we play? And you're like, well, <laughs> no, because we're absolutely jam-packed. We've got about 100 bands sitting on the sidelines waiting for a cancellation. But, you know, I'll keep you in mind for 2022. I'll let you know pretty soon if, you know, I think you're going to fit into our schedule, if you're going to fit on the programming, things like that. So it is... Um, for bands that I would say that, you know, that are maybe not, haven't got an agent and that's working with festivals, if you want to to get in on something like that, it is always good to, to get in touch a good, good bit in advance, like, really. That was, in fact, my very next question, which I'll ask anyway. Bands, do bands tend to approach you for the playing the festival or do you have bands that you approach or is it a kind of blend of the two? It's a bit of both, really. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a bit of both. Ultimately, I have a, a very strong idea of what sort of bands I want and where I want them. Quite often, though, you know, I'll go to an agent and, for instance, recently booked uh, Reckless Love, and that agent's job is also to try and see if we can get some of these other bands on the bill. If I, if I like them and we could get a deal, then I'll, I'll find a slot for them. But more or less, the, the main stage I have, it's all written down really what I want. And if it's only if a band isn't touring or, you know, not available um, that I'll, I'll look elsewhere and and see what's what else is going on you know we had that issue with michael monroe unfortunately we had him booked originally but he couldn't his schedule didn't work for him to come back and do it in september so we replaced him with reckless love and because we've had to roll it over we're keeping reckless love but michael probably would have been able to fit it in may again but you know it's contract to change and everything so it's just the way the way it falls really it's a difficulty there isn't it that i guess so you You've obviously had your festival that was planned for May 2020. And then, because we were chatting a bit before I started recording, it was going to maybe be September 2020. That's right. And then now it's just rolled over to May 21. So it would have been the next year. Yeah. So when we moved it from May to September, we lost a few bands. Not not a heck of a lot, but we lost a few. Some, some were just basically... Um, couldn't risk with COVID and stuff, even with social distancing. Because at this point, we had it all arranged that a band would arrive at the gates, come in on in their van. 
they go through all the checks and everything else and sanitization and all this stuff. They'd have their own little dressing room. They would stay there. Nobody would have no press. They would just stay there. Then they would get escorted to the stage. They would all be sanitized before they went on. They would play. Then they'd go back to the dressing room. Then they would leave. So they didn't have to come into contact with anybody except their own little bubble. Even with that, there was there was, there was just some bands were like, well, you know, I've got parents or we've got family that are very vulnerable. We can't risk it. And we just totally respected that. We said, that's absolutely fine. We will definitely keep you in mind for May 2021. But at that point, we didn't realise we were going to have to roll over from September to May. So now we have to sort of try and keep some of those bands in mind for 2022. So immediately got a little handful of bands that we kind of still owe their slot, you know. Sounds like a difficult juggling match, to be honest. It, it was. It was, uh, <laughs> I won't lie, it was from the, the rescheduling from May to September for, I think, four or five days. Um, myself and Lee Byrne, we did about three months' work try to reorganise everything because lots of bands were getting rescheduled for the tours and everything. Uh, so we're just constantly on the phone to people and oh, I was literally came out of that and I was completely burnt out, like probably close to having a nervous breakdown. It was, I was very, very short fuse by then. It looked great on paper, but it was, it was so difficult. It was unbelievable. But luckily enough, when with the rollover from September to May, it, it's gone very smoothly. Everybody was just sort of like, yeah. So cause we've, we've just always had these dates planned in case of something happening. So all the bands were kind of warned and it went moved over very smoothly this time. So that, that was a relief. I just pray that we don't have to do that ever again, though. Yes, it's got to be a logistical nightmare, to be honest. I can only imagine. It, it's difficult um, because even though we're a smaller festival, bands, like, they're on tour mostly. So it fits in with their tour plans. But if some of those dates on the tour get cancelled or postponed, then they can't afford to come out. So then they have to end up pulling out of your festival. You know, on the bigger scale of things, it's like download. If um, one of the European festivals cancels, then the whole lot are going to just fall like a pack of cards because those bands go around every festival and it's all um, priced out accordingly for it all to work. Um, so it's it's a lot of it's out of our hands, you know, at the best of time we do our best, but you can't prevent something happening in Germany or Italy or something like that that might throw the band's tour just down, down the drain, really. So when I go to festivals and I, I look at the lineup across the different stages, something that does occur to me sometimes is when you're organising a festival, do you try and plan a sort of order of who goes when as in do you try and go well this genre of band is followed by this genre of band and they're sort of a similar style or do you try and go for sort of radically different styles next to each other what's your approach with that yes i look at it a little bit like to say certain days on certain stages we have on the sort of lawless stage i think on the saturday we have a lot of heavier stuff a lot of metal so that was purposely all put together and that what I will do is if there's any, like we have three st outdoor stages, we have two stages that will sit back next to each other. So one will play, then another one will play after it. So one of those stages will slightly clash with the, the forest stage now, which is quite a bit distance away. So there's no um, bleed on the music or anything. But what I would do is if we have something like, you know, a sleazy rock band on one stage, then it's probably going to be something more like extreme metal or punk on the other one. So you, you can't say that that person won't like one or the other bands, but there's a chance that you're not splitting the audience too much. 
it's inevitable you're gonna have a little bit of a clash when you start having bigger festivals and stuff. Yeah, I I look at it and I plan it through, and it, it's been very good because a lot of bands are, are very understanding because it's always hot hard when you say to them, "You guys are going to be on at like twelve o'clock in the afternoon or eleven thirty on Sunday morning," because somebody has to open that stage. You know what I mean? But I have been to Bloodstock and stuff on a Sunday morning in the Sophie Lancaster stage, and it is packed, and and so it's not a bad time. And I always say this to bands. There is never a bad time to play at a festival. If you have a fan base, they will be in front of you no matter what time it is you play in the day. They will be there for you. So bands that go and say, oh, that's a rubbish time slot, I don't want to do it, then you cannot believe in what you what you do because if you're a good band, you will have your fans in front of you at any time of the day. I always think as a band, it's got to be a weird thing to take to a stage in the middle of the daylight when you're used to kind of maybe being in a club and it's all dark and moody lighting and things like that. Yeah, I think it's difficult for for any band, but I think we need to have summertime festivals to try and get the weather for us and stuff. But obviously it doesn't get dark till about 10 o'clock at night and the music usually has to wrap up about half past 10 or 11 o'clock. And we spend a fortune on a huge production of lighting and stuff like that and you can only really ever see it for the last hour of the day. So even if you're playing at 3 o'clock in the afternoon or you're playing at 9 o'clock at night, it's still pretty much daylight, you know. It's just part of that festival experience, I guess. But I think it is always quite awkward if you're, you know, like say it's trying to have, I think one of the best ways I could describe this is I went to see Slipknot on their first ever UK tour. I saw them at the Barrowlands. It was one of the most immense gigs I'd ever seen in my life. You know, they had the big lights and everything like that. The atmosphere was insane. The place just went on fire. It was absolutely amazing. I saw them maybe a year later at um, Milton Keynes Bowl. I think it was Ozfest, and they played in the afternoon. And I went down the front, and it was just lame. <laughs> you know, musically it was great, but like the atmosphere wasn't there. It was, it was just like, ah, it's just not quite the same. But that is part of that is the festival experience. You know, it's the same with downloads and all these big ones. That's it. It's just the way it is. You know, when a band has been booked to play your festival, I think it'd be a really helpful thing to ask: is what what should they bring? <laughs> what is provided for them and what do they bring themselves? And I know it's going to vary from festival to festival, but I'm going to, you know, speak to your experience. Well, with us, we, um, again, it's important that we make the process as easy as possible. So we have sponsors for 2021, which is Marshall Amps. So they will have Marshall Amps. We've got Natal Drums, so they're provided. So a band would really be asked to bring like their hardware, which would probably be the cymbals and their their kick pedals and their own sticks, funnily enough, believe it or not, because as a promoter, I have had that one once before where drummer didn't even bring his own sticks. Wow. Yeah, that's what I thought at the time as well. Wow. And yeah, we have uh, Ampeg on bass that we, we hire in for everybody. So like the whole backline is set up for you there. We have all the RPA system, engineers, stage hands, stage manager. So it's a process of bands just sort of turn up with their guitars and stuff and their everything's helped on stage and they're set up and it's it's very smooth as smooth as we can make it for them and i guess having the standardized backline of amps and things like that makes it a much quicker turnaround process because the slowest part of any gig is the changeover between bands yeah which is why we're very lucky to have an extremely professional crew on the stages again this is uh, a lot of people that uh, lee burn has worked with at big festivals 
and they turn around, they can turn around like a stage in about five minutes if they need to, you know. So it, it helps having the main backline there. You will get bands, headline bands obviously want their own kit, want their own amps sometimes. But throughout the day to have a static backline simplifies a lot of things. Yeah, definitely. In 2019, like I say, everything had gone very, very smooth band-wise all through the day. We were there. There was me, Dave, and Lee. We were like, we had a pint. We were kind of starting to celebrate. We were about to go on. We were like, this has been great, guys. Fantastic. And then suddenly we just looked around and all the lights had gone out in the whole place. It was like, oh, my God, what's happened? And they said, oh, the power's gone. <laughs> just like, what? You're joking. This cannot happen. And like we literally looked at each other and I went, oh, no. We were very lucky through the showground. Um, they have an on-site electrician, and he was there in, in no time. But what it was was a piece of equipment that the band had brought. The tour manager had his own mixing desk. He had advanced that detail to us. So we just, for instance, like the Wild Tarts had turned up 6 o'clock the morning of the day they played. Their crew come, and they patch in their desk and everything like that. So it's all tested. Unfortunately, I flew in in the afternoon straight to the, the, the festival. and to try to pack it in just before they went on and something was wrong with the desk and it blew everything. It was just like, oh my God. Again, another huge learning curve for us. It's like, you need to tell us if you're going to bring your own desk and you must be here at like six o'clock in the morning to patch it in. So thinking maybe to bands of the smaller following who are playing your festival, would you expect them to provide a list of what they're bringing? Like we have this many guitarists and you know a drummer and a bassist and we're using a computer or whatever yeah we have um like a procedure that we ask every band whether it's the headline band or the opening band a stage plan which tells us whereabouts on the stage they're going to stand any equipment that they need they how many backing vocalists they have lead vocalists because lead vocalist is not always your front man and our engineers have probably never seen these bands before so we only know what we're provided with in advance, which is, I will say to all bands, it's crucial that anything you're playing, that you're not taking your own engineer with, you advance all your details. It'll make life so much simpler. A lot of bands sometimes complain about, oh, that engineer was crap. It, was not, it wasn't crap. He just doesn't know your band. And he maybe had half an hour to figure out where you wanted everything, you know? So it's really crucial. And yeah, again, we always try to really city bands don't bring your amps you're like your full stacks and stuff because we don't we don't need them we have all that on stage if you don't want to use a marshall head bring your own head but we're not changing over the cabs and everything like that because that's when you, it runs into 20 minutes half an hour 45 minutes and the whole thing falls back and somebody will lose time and that just cannot happen to a headline band you know so again it's why we have very good stage managers it's a difficult job sometimes because a band can be a bit excited and they're getting a lot of great feedback and they're just lapping it up, they're enjoying it, and they've got seven songs, and they could be in the sixth song, and stage manager will literally just say, that's it, guys. <laughs> there is no talking around, like, it's literally, that's it. You have to finish, do it professionally, come off, you know. Because the worst thing possible is that they ignore the stage manager, they try to go into the seventh song, and, you know, the engineer will just cut the PA, you know. <laughs> that is awkward. It is awkward, but it's, unfortunately, we have bands further up the bill that, that need their time, and, and we've probably paid them a lot of money for that time as well. So, The thing I always try and emphasise to bands is when you're playing a gig, no matter how big or small, no matter how long or short your set length is, make sure you play to your set length. Make sure you've talked, you've worked out your 
song times and your your banter times and that you've got the time worked out down to a t yeah because you don't want to annoy promoters no it is a fine art and um yeah it's something i've always sort of passed on to bands is when i started working with fallen red 10 years ago we started on that process and i'd got your rehearsals and then i just said to them like play the set as you would play it don't just play the songs and have a break play the set you just start doing that and then you just time it and you know you're never more than a minute either way you know you, you have a gap and say this is when we're going to say you know hello Sheffield great to be here blah 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 but it's a rehearsal and that's what it is it's a rehearsal of your show and it's no different to the theatre you wouldn't have an actor saying oh I'm going to go and do its play and I don't know how it'll finish you know it's all you know timed out perfectly and it's the sign of a great band like when they you know I've had many bands that they're literally bang on their minute. Like they've they've got their absolute set down to the last ten seconds. <laughs> it's uh, it's amazing. It's just got to be done, hasn't it? It's it's you're right. It's it's professional and it's respectful to both the people who've put you there in terms of the promoters and the people further up the bill. Who, if you take too long, it's going to impact them. As a promoter, there's certain things I look for. If I've booked the band in the first place because I like something about them, I've either seen them somewhere else and think they've got something. I like their music, but I might not know much about the band as as people. So when a band arrives, I, I actually having manners and being polite, introducing yourself to me, the engineer, talking to the engineer with respect, and then you know following the rules that we've asked you to do is like your sound checks at this time. So please be there at this time to do your sound check. The sound check finishes at this time. It's not a rehearsal space. It's like sound check. Get all your everything mixes right get off, let the next band on. When it comes to your set time, get your time in. Don't make any excuses. If people are asking for one more song, one more song, and you know your time's up, don't think that it's suddenly your night. It's not if you're the support act, you know. It's different if you're the headline band because then you have to check with engineer if you can squeeze one more in. Engineer will be honest with you and say, yeah, got our song or not. But if you're a support band, you know, I always say you should always leave them one more anyway, so... It's always good to, to go off and, and have them want and want more. I mean, one thing I will say, so I'm a mixing engineer based at home, so I have the time to work on songs again and again for as much as I need to until it sounds right. The The live sound engineer is just a whole different realm. It has to sound right as it's happening, and if you've got any problems that are going on, you have to fix them as the pl- band is playing, which is something else. Y- yeah, you do, and... It's uh, it's a lot of pressure, and ultimately, a guy could be playing his guitar at a tune, and the audience will blame the engineer. Probably, <laughs> you know what I mean. It's it, he's always the easy scapegoat is the engineer, and most of the time, they're they're just doing their absolute level best to make that band sound as much like they want to sound. But um, again, it all comes down to the advance that they give that engineer, like how they want their sound. You know, moving back to the sort of festival as a whole. What would you say is the biggest challenge in organising a festival? I'm sure there's many, but what's like the, the, the big thing? I'd say the biggest challenge is still the ongoing challenge of um, marketing the festival, really, and trying to expand it to a point where we kind of have bands in mind that we want for probably 2022, but we have to try and make sure that we get close to covering all our bills, break even or a profit, a small loss, something like that, but we can't, you know, you can't ever go like having huge losses year after year and, and try to keep getting bigger and bigger bands because it just, it won't work. We have to do it in a gradual way. So we're just constantly trying to market it and 
get all, lots of people that have been. Unfortunately, it's only been one year, but they've shared their experiences with a lot of people. So, you know, we've had a lot of people saying, oh, yeah, such and such went. Said it was brilliant. I was thinking of coming, but I wasn't sure if it would ever happen. But I'm definitely coming next time. So that's what we're doing. But marketing is a very expensive job. Magazines, radio, four figures. You know, it would surprise people how much of our budget goes into marketing the festival. It's probably about 30% of the overall budget because you need the people to come ultimately <laughs> we do yes we do you know and they will come but we don't want to wait 10 years to get to um five thousand people like we want to be at five thousand people in 2022 for sure our ultimate goal is to be sitting somewhere between 30 and forty thousand people in 10 years that's that's kind of it for me we can't be bloodstock but bloodstock is probably what my favorite festival for the vibe the setup the friendliness everything about it is just for me, it's just perfect. So if we could get a festival that sort of was a bit like that, obviously we're, we're different sort of genre music and everything. I think that's ideal, you know. None of us particularly want to be like download or anything like that, you know. Big enough to attract the big, big bands, but small enough for it still to feel like a friendly sort of family, out with your mates type festival. The way, the way I describe it, if you lose your friends at Bloodstock, you'll bump into them again at some point. If you lose your friends at downloads, you probably won't see them for four days. No, yeah, they're, they're gone then. <laughs> they're gone, yeah, that's it. My final question is, what's the most rewarding thing about organising the festival? You painted a, a really lovely picture of just having some beers and it all going really well, but is that is that your most rewarding thing? Um, no, the most rewarding thing is is genuinely music fans coming up to you saying that they had one of the best times of their life, you know. That's what you aim for. It's a fight, like I said, it's a fine line between having fans feeling like that and bands feeling like they've been treated properly. And like I say, with with bigger bands, we get we get tech spec and riders and everything like that that we've got to to fulfil. But even like smaller bands, we were they were all introduced to the press room, and um, getting interviews, catering and drinks and beer and you know. They had stage hand and everything like that to help them with their gear on and off. They had their merchandise sold for them. We want to treat them as, as good as the sort of big bands, you know, that's it. I think so when we had people like that coming back and saying nice things and then we had fans saying it was one of the best days of my life, then that's that's the most rewarding thing you can actually do. And it's a kind of addictive. You want to just do it again for everybody. You wanted to keep doing it. So when you've you've had a hand in making something and people actually enjoy it. Yes, that, I mean that's that's the key thing. It's um it's a memory. You know, you've created a memory more than anything for for. I think we had four or five, six hundred people over the first weekend, and we've created great memories for those people. Hopefully, we created great memories for some of the bands as that played and stuff like that as well. I mean, a lot of the bands hung around the whole weekend and just enjoyed it all. That's uh, I think that's that's the greatest reward. It's. It's not money because we we know between the three of us, none of us take any money from this as a wage or anything at all. We do all this and we just plough everything straight back in. And that's literally what we would we keep doing like every year till we can get to a level where we're getting like, you know, a really big band to headline it. And then we'll maybe start looking at thinking, right, we should maybe get some money out of this for ourselves. But it's it's a passion. It's all, it is. And I think, you know, whether you're a musician or a promoter or an artist, a writer or anything like that, you know, everybody does it for the passion of it. And the money that comes along, if they're successful, is just consequential. It's just J.K. Rowling. She wasn't out to become a practical billionaire. It's just her passion to write books and stuff. And 
it's, it's the same with bands. You just never know when you're going to be that band that suddenly becomes huge. And it, it's just passion. And I believe the the three directors that we are and then the team that work with us and then even down to the volunteers that come and help us, It's everybody does it for passion. That's it, really. The festival is happening in May 2021, May next year, as we record. Where can people find out about the festival, what's happening, how much it is, things like that? The best place to go is our website, which is callthewildfestival.com. As soon as you go into that, there's a ticket link immediately that will take you to uh, our ticketing partner. And then when you go there, it has all the various options from glamping, hotel packages. Day tickets go on sale on the 1st of January. So at the minute, it's just weekend sales. At the minute, uh, up until 31st of December, we've extended the early bird. So £79 per adult for three days, and that includes your camping and your car parking. So I think that's a cracking deal, to be honest. It really is. If you want to go to a festival, then that's far cheaper than download or anything like that. It is, absolutely. I mean, some some of the bigger festivals, you almost pay that just to park your car and pitch your tent, to be honest. I've got to try and make it as affordable as possible to get to get people there. But at the same time, it's, you know, a lot of people say, oh, we're sick of corporate festivals. We want something real. Like, we are something real and we need the people to support it for it to continue yeah. to grow. And it'll always be the festival, you know, for fans. That That is it. It's like Monsters of Rock was. Well, it's how I felt it was. I used to go to Monsters of Rock at Donington and it, it just, it's such a different experience. And I think Stone Dead Festival, I've kind of captured that now. I absolutely love that festival that one day event and you feel very much it's it's just for the fans it's not about making money and getting huge sponsorship and stuff it's for the fans and that's what we'll always be it's a funny thing the more people that come we can afford to keep that price low longer <laughs> if anyone's interested in that website or social media links for the festival they are in the show notes if you go and click down in the description of the podcast episode so go there and that's your shortcut brilliant so, Raz, it's been great talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. So, that's it for another episode of the Music Survival Guide. If you enjoyed, then please leave us a review. I really appreciate them. And please also share it with any friends or bandmates if you thought it was useful and interesting. I really appreciate all of you out there in the music world. So, if you're interested, we have a community on Facebook called the Music Survival Guide Community, a really unique name. Hop over there for chats about music and band life with other musicians and people in the industry. And we will see you next week. <laughs>